Hello, my name is Aviva, and I will be having a conversation with Eva Las Vegas for the New York Public City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It's July 13th, 2020, and it's being recorded on Zoom where I'm staying in Red Hook. And where are you, Eva? I'm in Ridgewood. Okay. Uh, could you introduce yourself? Uh, hello, I'm Eva Vegas. Uh, I'm a, what's the word? I'm a recluse by nature, and I love animals and uh, people too. Mm. And, you know, I just love life and cooking and eating and just living. That sounds, that sounds great. And how has um, being a recluse uh, manifested in, in being a what? As you I said, you just. Oh, as you said, you were, you just said you're a recluse. And how has that, yeah. um, how has that been during COVID? Um, actually, in, initially, I was so happy because now people can live like me. <laughs> and I have a, a roommate that he's gone now. He just went to take a break. And uh, we were so happy. We were dancing around the house and making amazing meals. And that really paranoid about other people. Mm. Um, yeah, in, initially it was really heavy. You know, now that I'm used to it, sometimes I actually forgot to go out without a mask and that freaked me out. I started crying and came back home because <laughs> um, we were very sick here in in January. I came back from Seattle and I was I got sick and the other two roommates got sick, but I got sicker because I have lung issues and stuff. So whatever we had, I don't know. My roommate says that he lost a sense of smell. So maybe we had it, maybe we didn't. Mm -hmm. But I, I take a series of medications that prevent a lot of the secondary uh, effects of COVID, like the coagulation of the blood in the organs doesn't mm -hmm. happen to me because I take tons of blood thinners. Um, there's something else that I take that has to do with my stomach that also helps, supposedly, you know. But they did gave me the, the cocktail with the steroids and the, I forgot the name of the other thing, something weird. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I got better pretty, pretty quickly, you know, so it was probably a, either a very mild case or, or something else, another horrible flu. But we were sick for like a month almost. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah, the, the, you know, it's like I'm used to everything now. I just go buy stuff, wash it all up. I have a sister who's a doctor and she's, she is like so intensely paranoid about everything because she works in a hospital and, and, she, and she's not here either. She's in Ecuador and it's horrible there. It's been horrible from the get-go. People dead in the streets, you know, gigantic um, mass graves, you know. Um, well, they have one here too. In one of the islands, they have one too. Where they put the, it's the same thing, I believe, where they put the, the people in jail that don't have nobody recovers their bodies. Yeah. Another another beauty hidden in New York. <laughs> so uh, to take it back, like where where and when were you born? I was born in Puerto La Cruz, Venezuela, in 1963, December 17th, 1963. My parents' anniversary, so my parties were shit. <laughs> when I was a kid, <laughs> until I started to drink, then they were great because that's an anniversary party. And hold on, I need to get my dog. He's yeah. he wants to come in. Definitely. 
I need to go out the window. Hold on. Let me take the hair. Hold on, Monique. Hold on. I can't. I can't believe I can still do that. <laughs> yeah, you were fast. It brings. It brings. It sometimes like okay, why? Why can I do that? But I cannot do all these other things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I was born in Venezuela, and I lived in Venezuela until I was sixteen. We lived in different different uh, states. My father was an immigrant from the the Canary Islands, which. If not as as um, as high class as other Spaniards, you know they were treated really badly. So since he was a the foreign guy, they never like they would let him stay in a city for long. So he had to move all six kids and my mom all over the country, and then they made him the guy who would fight the unions. So basically, he was marked with the mark of asshole from the get go. <laughs> And, uh, but I was very fortunate that we did see many places and the instrument that I play, I learned how to play. I, my, the first time I started playing it, I was like six. And the woman who gave me lessons, the state that I lived in is very famous for that instrument. What's her name? So I learned with somebody, the, the cuatro, uh, like four. Yeah, yeah. Cuatro. And uh, the woman who gave me lessons was from a small town where they made amazing quadros. And so I was lucky that way, you know, and I was uh, exposed to different types of folk music, which, you know, is really awesome for me now because I still have that treasure of, of, of folklore, you know, in my memory. And um, I... I mean, even though my memory is getting bad, I do remember a lot of things and uh, very detailed. Like when I was two, I took a shit in front of my house. You know, I remember that. <laughs> I remember I was wearing a uh, a plaid jumper, <laughs> and I was two, and I remember that, but no more from that from that air from that epoch. <laughs> Are there certain songs that you played throughout the years from your childhood? Um. The songs that I play, I mean, there, there are songs that I've been playing since I was six. Mm. And uh, I, I look, the, the reason why, well, not only did I love singing, but my mom and my dad sang too. And they didn't play instruments. So me playing an instrument was kind of like for them. They wanted me to play with them because they would go serenade people. That was a thing they did you know, in, in the old times, but in the 70s was like the ending of that tradition. So his, their friends would come home and uh, they start drinking, talking, and next thing you know, they're going to other friends' house to serenade them so they would come out and, you know. So a lot of the songs that I learned initially were very old, tiny songs that my, both my parents sang. They, they're called boleros, which are like slow, you know, kind of like fado, and uh, they're like love songs or, lo or, or like unrequited love, you know, that kind of stuff. So I have that intense romanticism when it comes to music for me. And to when I write too, I kind of write like an old person from that time, the songs. And they're all about, you know, they're very follow-like. They're 
very pain, painful and the loss of love and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it's that. That's what we're talking about, right? The, yeah. How, yeah, how I started playing music. And yeah, every, from the moment that my mom heard me singing one time, sitting in a hammock, <laughs> she said, the girl can sing. Now, you know, she's dead and uh, she never got to know me and uh, all the changes that I've gone through in terms of my identity. And, uh, but that's how she found out that I sang. And from that day on, she would sing with me every day. She would sit with me and sing for hours and she taught me how to harmonize. And I think it was part of, I, I think it really helped their mental health too because my mom had mental illnesses that were never diagnosed. And plus PTSD from, you know, the, the tragedy of being a woman in the 1950s and later, you know, uh, she, my dad would let her work, uh, basically didn't let her go out, you know. Um, things changed and evolved and with time, you know, my father also came from extremely sad circumstances. You know, he was, a, a, you know, he lived in abject poverty his whole life. Um, his father, he just grew up with his father and they lived like from farm to farm where he, the dad would work. And um, his mom died when he was two. Then his father remarried and uh, that person died in childbirth and uh, they were alone again. And then my dad eventually, you know, my, my grandfather married again and he, this woman died of, later of cancer. But um, yeah, he didn't have a mother. He was very poor. There was a lot of physical abuse, you know, and verbal abuse. Um, like my sisters, my sister always said something. My dad's life was like a black and white movie. You know, it's like it was, there was nothing there. You know, you had to really look. And uh, he, I, I can say now, after he's died, you know, and I spent some time with him before he died, that it was a miracle that he actually was able to take care of us. Because with all the trauma that he had, you know, we, men don't have trauma in, in, in that culture, you know. They're not supposed to deal with anything. And it's okay if they're, if they're abusive. It's okay if they're physically abusive, you know, if they drink too much, you know, because that's, that's they're out. So I think that both my parents are kind of, were a miracle, you know, to, to be able to not damage us to the extent that we're trashed, you know. Um, there were problems, like, in a lot of families, but I have to say that still my family is very, very, there's a union there that's unbreakable. And even though I don't see them sometimes for decades, you know, and, uh, but I talk to them every day now, thanks to the wonders of technology, mm -hmm. we, we WhatsApp all day long, anything, anything happens and we tell each other. And um, I first experienced that when I went to Venezuela in 2006, but I've been here since 1980. So all that time I didn't have a family, you know, I, I was, my family is where my partner's family. And then when we broke up, I lost them because that's the way it is, you know, you completely lose people. Um, but then when I went in 2006, I, I noticed that everybody had cell phones too. And I noticed that it was a constant calling each other. And I was so jealous. I'm like, wow, 
I mean, it really affected me, and I probably acted out of the horrible thing, I smoke crack, or who knows what. Um, so, yeah, things do evolve, and if we have enough love, things can actually be beneficial and uh, soothing and all that other stuff that makes me cry, you know, so. <laughs> wow, wow. And what was the political landscape like in Venezuela as a child? As I, when I grew up there, you know, we were like demo and democracy, uh, extremely corrupt, and um, extremely um, uh, um, divided in classes. And there's a lot of colorism there. But the, the class thing was incredible. Like there was a, um, the marginalized people, they didn't even have, well, something like a lot like here, like they didn't even, they weren't even counted on the census. They weren't part of, of society or what the government did things for. They, you know, I don't know, I'm sure that you're familiar with the favelas and the people who, who make their own houses, they have no water, no electricity. And actually they eventually get all that stuff on their own. They're better engineers than people who go to school and architects, you know? So that, that, that being, that was like that my whole life. There was something in me though, maybe from my, my communist grandfather, <laughs> That's another story there. I would love to <laughs> that, know about that. That, that um, I, I knew from a very young age, I remember questioning God when I was nine and uh, my family, like my mom, especially who was very, she was like a true believer that never went to church. And, uh, and by the time I was like 11, I had, or 12, I had this teacher that was, really like woke me up to like the reality of life and then I had an amazing history teacher when I was like a sophomore and he was just the best he was the best he rode a motorcycle he was the music teacher too so we had a band and then when we when it came to history he never taught us with the books that they sent us he just told us everything and he saw it and he was black too so he really, Professor Toledo, that was his name. Oh, it's his name. Uh, he really affected the way that I saw the world. And uh, from the time that I remember, there were always protests in the street. I remember when I was in third grade, I, I, the school that I went to was next door to the high school that my sister and brother went to. And the high school, high school students have always been in the forefront of protests high school and university kids so there was there's something they do there that they burn tires I guess because it's black and and it's really it smells bad and it's like a chemical weapon that poor people can have you know so they were burning tires and the police came and they threw bombs into our school wow and the other school and and and, and the high school too but they threw them in our school and I remember from that, it was, not only was it like gas, but uh, it was like a camp, like a, it, we all got whooping cough after that. Everybody in the school. It was horrible. I think that that's one of the worst things that I've ever had, you know. Um, so there's always been unrest in Venezuela. There have been years of, <clears throat> of like, you know, peace. But, you know, once, once I left in 1980, so I don't know, I really don't even know the, the, the order of the presidents that we had. But there's two of them who were presidents again after 
because there's a law in Venezuela, I don't know if they changed it, that after 20 years, you can run again. So they had this guy called Carlos Andres Perez, who is, who is like the Reagan of the Venezuela. Of Venezuela. He nationalized the oil industry, and there was so much money, so much money. That's when a lot of Venezuelans started going to Miami just to go get their nails done. You know, it was that, and, and the dollar was only, was 430 Bolivarians for $1. Now it's like 8,000 or something. And uh, that's, at that time, it's when a lot of people would send their kids to go to school abroad because it, was, it wasn't that expensive. And uh, in Venezuela, public schools are okay. Like, it depends which one you go to. Some are really good. But there's a lot of striking and there's a lot of no, no classes. And so at that time, after that guy, you know, who stole so much money, he would fly above my high school every day to visit his mistress. And we all knew, you know, like everybody knew. And he had, he had, he had like, uh, I don't know, if it was supermarkets and pharmacies all over Europe. The guy became a millionaire. So they stole a lot of money. Eventually, people get tired, and there's unrest, and there's protests. And then Chavez came a few years later. After that guy, another guy who had been president in 1969, who was senile and cried over everything, he was president. And he was really awful when he was a president in 69. <clears throat> there was this thing they called the urban guerrilla, and he killed tons of students, you know, over that. Mm -hmm. um, it's Venezuela's never been a fair country, ever. It's never been a fair country. The fact that I went to school with people who didn't have running water and electricity, you know, it says it all. It's like Bernie says, you know, it's like, and AOC, you know, it's like, why do we have billionaires and people who are not eating, you know? So that was the political scene when I lived there. And then, then when I went back, years later, Chavez was president. And initially, I was excited about it because for me to see everybody in the streets, you know, it's like people came down from the hills, from the favelas. They all came down. Everybody was out. It wasn't just like white people walking around with blonde hair and clear eyes, you know, it's like everybody of every color, you know, it's like the, the, the demographic, the, the shape of the, of the populace changed. It was no longer just the children of Europeans. It was everybody, you know, everybody that was never visible to, to, to people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I saw other changes to social changes that were very needed. But the other side of people, they were resentful. They didn't want those poor people walking. You know, you know what I mean? They didn't want that. So they have made this whole narrative about socialism being bad when in Venezuela right now, there's no socialism. There's no revolution. There's a whole bunch of despotic assholes who won't leave the government and who actually ruined any capability Venezuela had to support itself. They ruined, Chavez started with it because he, it's like Trump, very much like Trump. He doesn't hire people who have knowledge or anything. He hires people who are loyal to him. He doesn't care if this guy's not an engineer, he would give him an engineer job. So like our, our <clears throat> oil refineries all stopped getting maintenance. So they, some of them caught on fire and were destroyed and the rest don't work. So they cannot longer extract 
extract oil from the soil in Venezuela. There's no gas in Venezuela, even though it's the biggest, uh, they're the biggest reserves of oil in the world. Um, yeah, the, the politics in Venezuela right now is not politics, it's a dictatorship. And, uh, and this, on the other hand, I don't agree with the opposition because they, they're what we call fachos, they're fast, fascists, you know, they're, all they they have asked they asked for help from the, the 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 European Union, but then since they didn't do anything because they can't really do anything they can't really just go in Venezuela and kill the president they can't it's it's not permitted by the by you know by all the laws ruling the world the world and the wars and everything so after they did that then they went and they went to the most the horrible the worst of the worst they came to Trump and to Bolsonaro asking for help. It's like, to me, they, I mean, they, I don't, I don't agree with that. I just don't believe it. I just saw on TV the Venezuelans talking to Trump like three days ago. And I was, I was nauseated, you know, it's like, I wanted to throw up. It was so bad, you know, it's like, they're like, and then they keep bringing Israel in, you know, like, okay, so you are a tasteless racist fuck, but now you are, you are siding with the Zionist side and the, the horrible human, you know, human rights um, violations, which happen in Venezuela too by the government. You know, they, I have a friend who was in jail for two years. No, they didn't process him or anything because he was a cameraman who had worked with somebody who they, they, the government killed. It's it's just horrible. It's horrible. The fight, they finally let let him let him go, you know. But he spent two years in jail, and the jails there are not like the jails here, even the bad ones, you know. Maybe like Rikers. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, what, and what brought you to New York in 1980? Well, I wanted to come to New York for decades. You know, I I lived in Seattle, and I had a little, you know, whatever happened to me in Seattle. I had my my little bit of of success, you know, play with the guy from Nirvana. And um, at the same time, Seattle at that time, and still, it's super white. And uh, I always felt like people didn't think I deserved that success, um, especially men. They were angry that this dude picked a chubby, you know, queer from another country. How, you did, know? how did you meet? How did that... Well, I had a friend, I have a friend, her name is Angela Mata, and uh, she was kind of a fan of, of mine when I, because I played music in the street for years, and I played in these other bands, so she was a fan, and she was a photographer, so she started doing photo shoots with me, and it turns out that she was friends, best friends with Chris's wife, and then when, when if I'm not wrong, I think that Kurt killed himself in April, somewhere around there, and Chris's birthday, I think it's in May. So he was really depressed and all this stuff because of the money, most anything. And uh, the wife threw a party and then she hired me to sing with this other friend of mine, Christopher Gonzalez, who we, he, he, nobody sang better with me. He, he could get inside of my voice and the most beautiful harmonies. So we went and played and it was, you know, it was... It was one of those moments in your life that you like, is this really happening? Because, I mean, that was my childhood dream, you know, not, not, not just to be a rocker, but to be around all the famous people, you know, shit that you think when you're 10. And there I was, 
and there were all the guys from all the bands in Seattle were there with him, you know, because they were, you know, uh, uh, supporting him with all these things that was happening. And they were so nice to me. Um, and next thing I know, he called me, he's like, hey, you want to come and jam with me? And he kept me, he, he kind of like, he kind of like kept doing that with me. And eventually I had to tell him, look, you're Chris Novoselic from Nirvana. And uh, I don't want to just be your jam partner because it's really making me crazy, you know? We're writing songs and doing all this stuff and then you have all the control over everything. So either you're going to play with me in a project or because, you know, friends we weren't, you know, and we never became really good friends, you know, only when we did drugs. And um, so then, you know, yeah, then we started the band and the rest is history. We don't talk. We haven't spoken since 2002 or something. And he's a libertarian who thinks that Trump is great. So, you know, the, I'm so glad when he did that, he did that Twitter thing that recently when he, he said that, that, that Trump, he, he hit it out of the park or something when he said that he was going to send thousands and thousands of heavily armed people, you know. And yeah, and then he had the whole narrative about the, the, the vile left, left people, the radical left. When he said that and people like totally like, like burned him and roasted him. It was like, oh my God, yeah, this is like such a validation that the guy not only was a controlling freak, but and a fucking racist too, you know? So I guess you get, I, I get my, my happiness in, in tiny increments, you know? Totally. And so you were in Seattle and then, and then eventually moved to New York or how, how did that? Oh, change? you asked me about New York. Okay. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, I, I'm, I'm yeah, happy to I went to Seattle. That. I went to Seattle in 1980 because mm, we had visited my brother there. My dad asked me if I liked Seattle University, and I said yes. As things happened, my parents didn't even let me finish high school because I was very outspoken and <laughs> very rebellious due to something that they ignore. I was sexually abused uh, by, by my karate teacher for years, and that really changed my life. I became a very aggressive very angry child. And they, they just assumed that I was just, that I had bad behavior, you know. So my dad, especially, they sent me away. I feel like they kind of sent me away at the same time I really wanted to leave, you know. So they sent me in 1980 and I went to Tennessee initially, the worst place of all places. Went to a boarding school there that was like in its last legs. So they ripped us all off. All the Venezuelans went there, got ripped off. Eventually, I went to my brother was in LA. I went to LA. Then I went to Seattle. I stayed in Seattle for 25 years. Wow. I tried, I tried, I left a few times. I went to, to LA for a while. I went to San Francisco for a while. And, and then I went to, when I finally left in 2005, I left and I went, I wanted to go to Venezuela to stay for a year. You know, I just really needed to leave. I broke up from a bad relationship, all that stuff. But uh, turns out I couldn't do it, you know. So I went back to San Francisco. And then in San Francisco, my friend, I said, I really want to go to New York. I just, I, oh, I'm sorry. Rewind. No, before, go back, yeah. before that, because I tried to go to New York in 1999. I went to Alaska to fish. Because, mm -hmm. you know, everybody, it's like the weed. You make a lot of money. So I went, it turns out that the people who are greenhorns, sometimes they get ripped off. They don't pay you. What does greenhorn mean? Greenhorn is like a newbie. 
a new one. So I was gonna go with my roommate, but then my roommate, uh, my roommate mom, my roommate's mom hated me. It's like she thought because we were we, we had sex, we had like, we were like we did like roommates activities, you know. And and I was much much older than him, you know. Uh, so she told him she cannot go in the in the in the boat with you. So she they sent me to the other side of the island. I was in Kodiak Island to some friend of theirs. You, the only way to go there was by by tiny plane. So <clears throat> there's no roads or no way to get out of there. So I, I worked in a couple of boats. I learned a lot of stuff. I learned how to make how to sew a seine, you know, the nets. I I learned how to take apart an engine and put it back together, you know. <laughs> I learned all that stuff and then I learned the fishing and then they fired me because I complained about a homophobic movie. And the next day he told me, you know, I think you're, you're too small for this job. What? Do you, know, he, do you remember what the movie was? It was something about, bring it on, bring it on, or something like that. One of those cheerleader things and there was something about the, calling somebody a dyke or something. Anyway, it wasn't nothing big, you know, but they fired me. And, um, and then I went, I, so anyway, when I came back to New York, I didn't have money to come. I, when I came, went back to Seattle, I didn't have money to go to New York. So I spent some horrible, you know, by that point, I didn't have a place to live. Um, you know, I, I mean, I had a place to stay, you know, but I didn't have a place of my own, you know. And uh, eventually uh, a friend, I, I went to San Francisco again, or I went to Venezuela. I moved, went to Venezuela, and then I ended up in San Francisco. And my friend... Uh, told me, well, okay, if you, pay, if you pay my apartment, I'll give you so much money. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I was so stupid. I told him that's too much money. <laughs> but uh, oh, there was something else there in between that, coming from Venezuela and going to... Oh, oh, somebody made a documentary about me. And I hadn't seen it. And it was going to... The reason why I came back from Venezuela was because of that. The, the movie was... Uh, the premiere was in, in a film festival the Seattle Film Festival. So I went back to Seattle to see the movie. And uh, when I saw it, I realized how fucked up that documentary was. I mean, then they would show me performing. So of course, but they try to make me look like I was crazy. They even speed, speeded up my, my speech. And uh, it was like, they made it like a mockumentary. It was really horribly painful. You know, so I watched it, and then at, at, during the Q&A, they almost killed those guys because I did have a lot of fans even in, in Seattle, and uh, the line was across the, across the block, you know. So all those people were so pissed off from what they'd done that they took the, the movie off, and the guy never talked to me again. But anyway, then after that, I went to San Francisco, and uh, my friend gave me the money, and I remember I left on October 12th, of 2006 and uh, it was raining I hadn't slept all night and I walked with a gigantic suitcase three instruments and a big duffel bag to the, to the train got to New York that night and, it, and my shoulder didn't work anymore <laughs> and I got you know I got my apart the, the room I got it through my space and, and then it turns out the guy was a fan of Nirvana, and that's why he wanted me to live with him. I lived there for a year, and uh, it wasn't good. He was, he was terrible. 
But, you know, I, I mean, I, I was paying him $500. I, I thought that I could never find anything for $500 back then. What part of the city was it? It was, it was right on Bushwick Avenue. Bushwick and, and Kosuth. And um, the, then I found out one day I left, my friend came to get me, my friend who gave me my dog told me, you have a dog here for you. I have a dog for you because I've always had a small little dog, you know, with me. So I went to get it in Vermont. And when I came back, there was a party in the house. It was really cool. These goth punk black people. It was awesome. Um, and then I started talking. One of the girls starts talking to me and said, I want to tell you something. And I'm like, how much rent is he making you pay? And I say, I'm paying $500. And she's like, well, the apartment is only $600. Oh my so, God. so you're paying most of the rent, you know. Uh, so from that moment on, you know, I didn't, it wasn't good anymore. <laughs> Eventually I moved out. The next house I lived burned down, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, you, you know the girls from, you remember 1087? I don't know if I do, but tell well, me. Uh, you know Amelia, Widow? Yeah, yeah, of course. They all lived in this loft on, on Broadway. So I stayed there for a while after my house burned. Then, you know, I lived everywhere. I, I finally got here to this place about 10 years ago. And I'm, they're going to pull my dead cold body out of here. I'm not leaving. <laughs> you know, and yeah. the landlord keeps trying to make it difficult for me. But it's like, dude, I slept on a bench in the street. I slept in front of cars in a, in a parking garage. So, mm. I, I mean, you can try to make me uncomfortable. Good luck. You know, <laughs> it's not going to happen. I do lose my mind, though, and, and, you know, and I do suffer from depression, and, and there's only so much I can take before I break down. Mm. But you know what? It's true. You know, with time, you, you can heal, and you can get better, and you can be more, more ready for the world, you know. I, I, I lived many years when I wasn't ready for the world, but I was there, you know, so I did a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. I wrote a lot of good songs too, though. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of um, identity formation, did you, when did you have an idea of transness or gayness in your life? Were there models or I think, well, in Venezuela, there were, there were only trans women visible i mean i did see a lot of trans men you know like i would see them but not in the society in the society any woman that was going somewhere else or any a person born assigned a, a female going somewhere else it was just uh, very vilified and trans women were made fun of you know i always treated as men with dresses so, but I remember since I was, I remember being five years old before we went to the place where I learned how to play. Uh, we lived in Caracas and uh, I had a little friend. My friends were the owner of the bodega next door, who was Portuguese, Jose was his name. And then some kids that would run with me around there. I didn't really have a lot of friends. And I remember sit, standing in, in the bodega and I was standing against the wall with one of my feet you know, like, like folded my legs, you know, like, like this, you know, mm -hmm. and I had, I remember I had a, a button up yellow shirt and little jeans and I kept opening the buttons, one, two, three. And by that point they were like down to like below my, my, 
my nipples like way down, you know, and I was just sitting there like, you know, some 1970s dude, you know, my hair was much, were pretty much like this, you know, and a girl's like, girls don't stand like that. And I'm like, I'm not a girl. That's my earliest memory of like feeling and owning that my body wasn't, I mean, not that it was wrong. It's just that I, I was not that, you know, I just don't align with that. Never have, you know, it's when I had boyfriends, I felt more like gay. Like I was a gay man. Mm. I was very topish with them too. You know? <laughs> so, and how would you yeah. describe your gender? I feel that I don't want to call myself trans because there are people who are going through this whole, um, what's it called, uh, process, the, the whole transformation, be it physical or, or mentally. I just, I just don't fit in the category. I'm not straight, you know. I'm definitely not, het- not heterosexual and I'm not cis. You know, that I, I consider myself queer. I consider, I consider myself a day. You know, I just don't, I don't, I just can't with a gender binary. It's so constrictive and um, it's just not working anymore. You know, I don't think it works in the world that we live. It's just, you're trying to do an old thing for a new thing and it's just not working anymore because it gets in the way of everything. It gets in the way of equality. It gets in everywhere. It gets in, yeah. It gets in the way of like trying to minimize violence. Um, it's horrible for men and it's horrible. It's lethal for women, you know? So I don't know what else. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm older too. So I come from a generation that, I come from the generation that got angry when they added the T to LGBT. You know, I, a lot of people who are my, my, my contemporaries are TERFs, you know, and even the ones who don't, are not TERFs, they're TERFy, you know. Um, I come from a generation, well, this hasn't changed a whole lot from the generation where if you went to a gay bar, it would say, this is an establishment for men by men, bitches get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, up to me, sometimes white gay men are the pinnacle of, of destruction, you know, of, of, of white supremacy, misogyny. Misogyny and white supremacy is like they really are up there, you know. It's like, so I don't know if that's, that so, explains so, a little bit. Yeah, it does. And what kind of communities were you connecting to when you moved here to, to New York? Oh, to New York, I mean, I, I got hooked up with those kids immediately because in that house that I lived at was close to this place. I don't know if you remember Goodbye Blue Mondays. It was a place on Broadway, you know, it was like where it was like the place where all the white people went, mm-hmm. you know, so and they had music every day. They had open mic every day and they had like, yeah, they had music all the time. I was like where all the hipsters went. So the roommate that I had told me, I went by, by Goodbye Blue Mondays, and I think they're looking for somebody. So I went, I went there, and they gave me a job immediately, which was a first in my life. I can never get a job. And um, I think the owner knew who I was from Nirvana, from that whole thing. That has really opened some doors for me and has sent me in some horrible trips, too. 
but uh, they gave me a job. And then I met, I don't know if you know Mel, mm-hmm. Mel Elbert. I met Mel. And then she took me up and then I met them. So immediately there was a connection with all these queer punks. And uh, it, was, it was like, oh, I just, I don't know why it took me so long to come to New York. You know, I was telling a friend today, it's like, it took me so long to come here and I feel home here. I felt at home from the moment I got here. When I got off the J train to go to the place that I moved in, mm-hmm. just the fact that they were all people of color, I was shaking inside. They, I mean, I can feel it right now. My the hair, my face, and my legs standing up. The amount of people of color, of black people, it just, it just made me feel so excited. You know, so excited, and at the same time, felt like I was missing so much. And then the first time I woke up here. In the morning, I woke up and I hear the train kind of far away. But then there was a neighbor playing really loud techno. And another neighbor was playing really loud salsa. And then a rooster started singing. And, then, and it all sounded like the most amazing mix ever. And, you know, it's like there's so many things that happened to me here like that. You know, it's like, why wasn't I here before? But then... You know, I just, I would just drink on that moment, you know, that moment that's happening and how these things make me feel so amazing. And yeah, so that's, that's the people that I connected with. And then soon after that, they took me to Ida, which, you know, the first time I went, I was like, oh my God, maybe the drugs, I don't know what. But then as I went back, then I realized how racist it was and how problematic it was how ages and, and ableist and all those things, you know. And then I realized, oh, my God, we're in the South. <laughs> That's why <laughs> there's a chapter of the KKK a mile down the, the road, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I was actually kicked out, of, kicked out of Ida once. Not during the thing, just on another time. But that, that's what happens when, when you date white women from the South, you know. <laughs> Wow. And what kind of like social shifts have you experienced since living in New York? Like, have you seen communities like rise up and fall apart? Like what has shaped? Oh, well, I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in a microcosm, I guess, you know, like that whole 10, uh, 18, I already forgot the name of the law. 1017, 1017, yeah. That, whole, that was a huge social thing happening there. There, was, there were shows there. Uh, it was very feminist, and uh, then people started moving out, and that died, you know, and I had to find, I mean, I'm glad that I still, I remain friends forever. Widow's one of my best friends, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen those things come and go, like group, just groups of people, communities. I don't know, because I, like I said, I'm a recluse, you know. I don't really participate much on... On things I have physical problems too, you know, um, pain. I deal with pain and and my lungs and all that stuff. So I don't, I don't, I'm not as social as I was when I first moved here. When I first moved here, I because there are so many open mics in New York. I would play five days a week, and I I made my own CDs. Well, I even have a little bag around here. I used to make my own CDs and put them in the brown paper bags. And I sold so many, I made a lot of money when I first got here selling CDs from my case and 
just playing every night. And then I would play in the subway too because that's, that's the life I had when I was, I was in Seattle. I played basically all day long. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, shifts. There's been, a lot of, there's been a lot of people, in New York, people come and go. You know, it's not like Seattle where every time I visit, the same people are there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a really nice place to live, but it's are so there, white. Are, are there familiar places in New York that you're just, like, grateful for that you return to that are, like, either establishments or, like, just any kind of, yeah, <clears throat> place that feels like home? I mean, it's like the whole place feels like home to me. Yeah. I go to the doctor and I feel home, you know? <laughs> I, you know, it's like every time I cross the Williamsburg Bridge, I still get, I, you know, skip a bit when I see all the, the when I see the city, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't get old, you know? Definitely. Um, when I first got here, we would always take that Stanton Island Ferry. We take the Stanton Island Ferry and then, bring four, 40s and then drink them on the other side and come back really drunk. Um, I love the cubby hole. Mm. I really like Henrietta's of, of, of the, uh, the Hudson. Henrietta is the, the lesbian market still, the place where they have most everybody's personal color. And that's nice, you know. And they play salsa. And I love that, you know. Um, I mean, places, I don't know, I love my, I love this part right here, my kitchen, you know, I, I've spent so many hours here, um, I don't know, parks, I don't know, I, I've, not, I've never been a park person, or just the whole city in general, you know, coming into the city is always the same too, when I'm coming in, into the city from, from New Jersey or from from the south, you know, it's, it's always like, ah, oh, I'm home. Sorry, the roofs in Brooklyn, you know, are something that I, every time I go to my roof, I'm like, I'm so lucky that I can go to this roof and uh, it's all painted silver, you know, it's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. And watch, watch the pigeons fly, I'm a pigeon person. Um, my dad used to have pigeons, so, um, I love the pigeons. I fight with everybody about the pigeons because they, they do horrible things to them. Mm. I am that crazy person, that crazy older person with the pigeons. <laughs> I love that. I want a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and what comes of, um, like, what are some of the hardest parts about coming to this city? Like, what are some of the things that you've had to deal with? Coming to the city? Or just like living here for so long. Like what are some of mm, I mean it's so much easier here than any anywhere else that I've lived in. Yeah. Everything everything clicked for me when I came here, you know. It's like I I oh, a lot of the problems that I have with my health right now come from horrible medical care. Um in Seattle, I would go to the, you know, it's like nobody ever told me, you know, after I got disability, they never told me you need to get a primary care provider. They never told me that. So I didn't know. So I would go to the emergency room. Yeah. And all those years, you know, after all the drugs and everything, 
I was having high blood pressure and nobody told me. When I got here, a year after, I had two strokes. Wow. Because I, you know, I should have been on medication for that, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then after that, then they had to do the surgery, you know. They, they took a piece of one artery and put it in here because it was so blocked, you know. Obviously, I've had arteriosclerosis for years, and it went untreated, you know. Yeah. And if that's directly uh, uh, connected with Seattle and their racism. So when I came here and all that stuff started clicking, you know, it's like they were like people actually have more people skills here. There's more people of color and they need us all to keep the economy moving. They cannot gentrify us out because, I mean, where are we going to live in, in Newark? So <clears throat> there's that, that part of, of being, why it's easier here. Everything is easier here. It's like even going out at night in Seattle I was terrified because there's shit happening at night there. Because white people, when they're criminals, they don't care because nothing's going to happen to them when there's a whole other demographic that the pol that's being policed, you know? I, yeah. can, I can go out here anytime. It's like, and I don't feel scared, you know? I don't... The only thing that's difficult here is how hot it gets. It gets way too hot. Uh, it's difficult when you don't have a right to go to the beach, you know? These are the difficult things for me here. You know, I can almost say that I feel like, a, you know, first world problems, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't had anything here that really makes it hard for me. I've never yet. I've been here almost 15 years. And uh, <clears throat> 15 years? 45. Anyway, I, 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 I never have had that thing like I need to get out of the city, you know. When I get out, it's great, but it's not like I need to get out of the city, you know. I'm, I do have a pretty charmed life, you know, because I, I learned how to be poor. I don't save money for things that I want because I don't want anything, you know, and I can live with the little money that I have and the little bit of money that I make on the side, you know, and I live fine here. Yeah. I couldn't live in, in Seattle. I couldn't. There's no way to pay rent there. It's more what? expensive than here. What forms of employment have you had? Well, I have had a lot of forms of employment. There's ones um, that you can talk about that feel like. Oh, well, I, I used to clean Bill Gates' house. And, and Gary Larson, the guy from the far side, I used to clean his house too. Uh, uh, I did that. I did house cleaning for a while. That's what they call the lesbian circuit. You know, you do house cleaning, you make coffee. Um, Were you talking to them? Were you having conversations with them? Well, I mean, I only saw Bill three times. He was never there, you know. He was. He used to wear his pants really high. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did that. I worked for. I worked for. I did photo photo uh, film developing in a big lab. I worked for Nintendo. I was. I did social work. I worked for Seattle Ripley for a few years. I was a Latino community advocate. I would do sometimes, um, I had, a, I had, I knew a couple of professors in the University of Washington that would take, you know, they would like hire me to, to talk to their class about, you know, being queer and an artist and um, talk about racism and homophobia. Um, what else have I done? I, I mean, I've done all the shit jobs that people do when they're not hired for anything, you know, it's like I don't have any skills other than singing. And uh, I mean, I do have skills, you know, but not like, I don't have a diploma, you know, I, I never finished college. 
and um, that was another fiasco. You know, I went to college and they, they, even though I spoke English fine, they would never let me take college courses, you know, and, and this one, this one teacher that I had, I think that she was like the person who assigned me things. She told me, well, I lived in Costa Rica and I could never be as good as the Costa Ricans. So foreigners here cannot be as good as the Americans. So I cannot give you an A, even though. And then she would tell me, you don't come to class all the time. It's like, well, I'm working. It's like, well, I cannot give you an A. So that kind of really turned me off from going to school. I just took, I just took some singing classes because I love the teacher, you know, some opera stuff and and I took a dance class you know and then I stopped going to school together I was married at, the, at that point oh okay How my, oh, my parents okay that's another story I went yeah. to Venice I, I had this I came I went to Seattle and I there was this kid that he followed me around and followed me around and I wasn't even attracted to him you know followed him around but you know when you're so young you have sex with somebody and immediately you're in love you know even if it's the worst sex you've had in your life. So I, I met him and uh, we, he, he moved in with me. He never paid me rent. And uh, <clears throat> my parents came to visit me and I had to move him out because they couldn't know that I live with him. <clears throat> I'm sure they found some of his underwear somewhere. And um, my parents invited him to Venezuela. So first we went for Thanksgiving to his mom who hated me, very racist. He was part, he was half white, half uh, Bolivian. His dad was a native Quechua. Um, and his mom was white Jew Jewish. And she just hated me, you know. It's like, I mean, he was young, you know. Maybe she thought that I was going to force him to marry me. I wasn't, but my parents did. When I got to Venezuela, they told me, why didn't you get married? And they, they were like totally like brainwashing me. And I was like, no, I don't want to get married. And then my dad told me, either you get married or you cannot go back because yeah. you have a boyfriend. And I'm like, do you think, I couldn't even tell him, do you think I'm a virgin? Because he would have slapped me, you know. But anyway, we got married in Venezuela. And uh, we stayed there for six months until I was cleared by the FBI. And then we came. We came to the United States. And uh, that was that. You know, I was married to him for like four years. And then... You know, as things happened, I ended up some bathroom having sex with a woman, and I told him, you know, this is just not gonna work out anymore, because I'd rather do that. And uh, we're still friends, though. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I I'm friends with, I'm friends with all my exes. You know, there's one that I try to avoid because she's a little bit too crazy, but um, yeah, I love them all. That's miraculous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not initially. Some of them, there's been like a lot of bitterness, but you know, then uh, um, I just don't, I, you know, I don't have a family here. So people that I give my love to, I just, and I just, I just don't kick them out of my life unless they, they're really toxic and bad for me, you know? Totally. Totally. And before we start recording, you were talking about ACT UP and like remembering that moment. And I just wanted to kind of return to different parts of um, gay history and like what that was like for you at the time. If you it was exciting. Yeah. And I mean, ACT UP was exciting and it was incredibly sad because my generation lost so many men. 
so many men. Um, it was it was tragic. I mean, this is this pandemic. You don't see people in the streets with with um, with carrying IVs and bags and like they look like they from a concentration camp. You know, a man that you saw two days ago, I mean, like a week ago, and he looked fine, and now he looks like a skeleton. You know, it was it was that kind of that kind of fast. It was killing people really fast. Mm. It killed my best friend. And the horrible thing about that, I mean, one of the many horrible things about that was that he died a week before the cocktail came out. That started saving people. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a few people that he had met that were dying actually made it. He didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was so harsh to watch him die. He was, he was a compulsive liar, you know, and he lied until the end. And I think that that's like, I think that he was, he was kind of, he had dementia too. He was so much, much. He would have like towards the end before he, when he was still able to, to, to go out and do things, even though he was very, very thin and he had constant outbreaks of herpes all over his body. Uh, he was losing his teeth, you know. <clears throat> but he, he, always thought, he always thought that he had friendships with these famous people, you know, because he would write them and they would get, he would get one of those letters, you know, that they, they, they sent to the fans, you know. So his last birthday, he, he rented a room in a restaurant and he sent invitations to all these famous people, you know. <laughs> so the, the room was filled with balloons from people like Patti LaBelle and, <laughs> and Wilson. <laughs> he was a singer too. He, sang, he had the most beautiful like falsetto. <laughs> he really sounded like a, like a soprano. Wow. His name was Eddie, Eddie Bartoli. Yeah. Uh, it was very sad when he died. I, I tried to give his ashes to his family and they didn't want it. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was in the band with Chris and I toured and went around the world and around the U.S. So I took, I took like a bag of his ashes with me and I would throw some in every stage that I played at. Mm-hmm. And then eventually his sister told me, we would like to have his ashes now. So I took half. Wow. Gave him half. You know what they did? They took it and they threw it in the trunk of the car. I'm like, what the fuck? So, you know, I kept taking him places and throwing little ashes of him everywhere. At the end, I I threw the last bit in the in the lake, in Lake Lake Washington. And <laughs> I didn't know that that ashes from a body, it's almost like a pigment. It's almost like dry paint, mm. probably for the bones and stuff. So when you throw it in the water, it becomes a gigantic white spot. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. When you get older, you start having funny stories about ashes. <laughs> I have a friend, I have a friend in, in Seattle who is a pilot. And she would like, a side gig would be like people ask her to dump ashes like over Mount Rainier or Mount St. Helens or whatever. 
So she said one time, one time she was with she was with a friend, and she told the person to okay, open the window a little bit, and put your hand out, and and just hold the bag, you know. So her friend did it all wrong, and all the ashes blew back on them. <laughs> and it's illegal to do that too. <laughs> That is too much. That is just too much. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself through touring and through living in all these different places? You know that it, my tours have I've had different bands, you know, but like with that band with the dude from Seattle, that was a very painful time for me because here I was, supposed to be happy. The press trashed me. They, I mean, they just wanted to hate me. They, they, I, I mean, the only time when I realized it's so bullshit is when they said that I couldn't sing. Because I know I can sing. That's one thing I know I can do, and nobody's going to tell me otherwise, you know. And then they would give him all the credit for everything. I wrote all the songs. I wrote, I wrote 95% of everything in that band. And he wanted 50%, and I said, no. This song, I wrote it in its entirety. That's my song, not yours. He fucked me so badly with the money too. He took all the deductions when we got our advance. We got an advance of a million and, and a half. And he took all the deductions. And then I got this huge whopping fucking tax, you know, thing that I had to pay. He was an asshole. He's still an asshole. He was controlling and rude and yeah. Mm. He couldn't, you know, it's like I thought we made our record was really good and we still have fans from that record. But, um, yeah, he just, he was racist, you know, he was racist. And he told me once, like, well, you know, you're queer, so I just really don't know what to talk to you and your partner about. As if that's my whole life, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not here, we're not here trading sex secrets, okay? We're just, we can talk about anything. Yeah. And, you know, I learned from touring, I learned that when you tour, you don't really get to see anything. You go, you wait at the bar, you, you do sound check, you go back to the hotel, you wait until they come and pick you up, and then you play. And if you're lucky, you get to go to sleep. If not, you get on the bus and take off. Wow, yeah. So it's like I, I did one tour, I did take pictures of every toilet. Because that's what I saw. <laughs> okay. I, I did see, I mean, I did see some things, you know, it's like, I, like, we had to drive by, by the loo and the, the, and, and the cell tower. And we saw, we drove by the factory. There's a factory in the cover of a, a Pink Floyd album that, that has like a factory it's called Animals. And we drove by that factory. We went to Christiania. Um, that's about it. We walked around Piccadilly Circus, you know, but not really, we didn't really do anything because we had like one day, maybe two. In in, Fran- in Paris, we did stay a week and that was cool. I did a lot of walking mm. and uh, I just, it was weird because I was by myself, you know. Yeah. We didn't hang out, you know. Yeah. And when you say your music, um, or at least in your early life, was drawn from folk, folk music, are there what other forms of music throughout your life have influenced what you like? Well, I mean, it's like when I was a teenager, I was really into rock, but not every rock, you know. It's like I my influences were like 
I mean, rock and more like alternative stuff that is not even alternative. You know, like I love Yoko Ono and Nina Hagen. And um, I do love salsa too. So I, I really like Ruben Blades, uh, Willie Colon, you know, the, the Fania All Stars. I, that, I grew up with that and I really love it. I played, I sang some salsa bands when I was really young too. I wish I could find one here. There's a lot of them here, but I'm afraid people here are so good. Mm. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, Brock, I mean, like I told you, that teacher that I had, Toledo, he, he, he taught, he, you know, he would play all these rock songs and, but kind of like musicals too, you know, <laughs> like I remember one time he would translate in his really bad English, all these songs to Spanish and then we would do them and they were like, you know, like horrible songs like Hotel California. But then, then I do love Carol King, and he we did some Carol King, you know, translated, and then he translated the whole Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> uh, I still have some pictures of us playing music. Um, yeah, I mean, every, I mean, all all kinds of different music have really, really impressed me, you know. Punk music is the only music that doesn't impress me. More like the new new queer punk bands, I there's an attraction there, especially the one. There's oh, what's the name of this band? They do Selena covers. It's a punk band. It's so awesome. Uh, you know who Show Me Noise is? Uh, uh, she's a singer. Um, and then there's Crock Crock Core. You know who that is? Uh, that's uh. She's a she's a um, she's a painter and uh, she made the tarot cards with all the queer people. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I you know like I said, my memory is not even the week because I haven't smoked today. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, all kinds of music has really, really. I mean, the the music by my parents. My uncle was an amazing gifted musician too. Um, yeah, I don't know. And has um. I mean, when you were playing with Chris from Nirvana and, and experiencing that like level of visibility and then also receiving um, feedback from the press, like did that shape or change the ways you related to music? Um, I mean, it kind of forced me into doing what I thought people wanted. And it, it's a testament to, to my musicianship, you know, that I was able to do that, you know, because I, before that, I think I played in, in rock bands, but they weren't like, you know, grunge, you know, I hate that word. Um, it's like I would, I would always have in mind, like, all these other bands so I could fit in there, you know. Mm -hmm. And actually, Chris was the one who, who he, he begged me, please, let's do these songs in Spanish. And uh, songs that I sang, you know, and there's two songs in Spanish in the record. And one I wrote and the other one is a traditional song, a work song. And I remember that one, the guy from, from R.E.M., the Peter Buck played mandolin, like in, like in Losing My Religion, you know, he played the mandolin, <laughs> he played the mandolin for that song. And uh, yeah, and yeah, it did change. It did change my the way I viewed, especially like women in music. It really changed. Mm 
because I toured with L7 and I've never seen an, a band more committed and more made for that. They're like, they were like made for this, you know, like their personalities, the funniest people I've seen in my life, you know, and just so strong and so badass, you know, I'm funny, but so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it changed it changed my perception in other things besides the music because the music is always going to be music, you know? And at this point, I actually, at this point, I very rarely even play. In fact, people ask me to do live things on Facebook and stuff. And I've done maybe twice, but I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not, I'm not like I used to be. I used to play guitar at least, at least eight hours a day. You know, I was really into it. <laughs> And sing, I would sing most days, you know, all day. I would sit in my porch and sing all day. <clears throat> and I haven't, I haven't been doing that, you know. It's like I'm, I'm doing other stuff now, you know, that's more satisfactory for my mind, you know, my soul, you know, maybe what, talking to people. Huh? What, what sorts of things? Well, because I don't leave my house, I talk to tons of people every day on the internet, like people in other countries and people that I've met. And uh, I write poetry, you know, and I very depressing sometimes poetry or very angry. There's no happy medium there. <laughs> um, I love to cook. I really love to cook and take pictures of my food. <laughs> That's that's like the baseline of how I communicate with my family. Mm. Everything is very pleasant. And here's a picture of my breakfast. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I don't know. It's like I'm so very self-consumed, you know, with just my day-to-day. -day. Um, it's just like my life is so simple now. And I really like it. Mm. I really like it. Before, when I had a show out of town, I would get really excited, and I was like, God damn, and I have to pack. Mm. So, so when I go out, I just take a plane, you know? But now with the, this virus, you know, uh, I don't know. And since they, well, I don't have an American passport, so maybe I could go to Europe, but maybe mm -hmm. not because I live here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was just wondering, since, you know, this is a record of, um, GNC and trans life in New York and um, all these ways in which people survive and exist through all these echelons of hardship, mm -hmm. you know, just like so much mm -hmm. hardship. If there's something you want to share around how, yeah, how you arrived at this place where you are talking about how you are so happy to have this like simple way to like navigate these days that are extremely fraught and I just, yeah, any kind of advice would be really beautiful. Well, I try to tell people <laughs> that um, material things and money really don't really gain, don't really get you anything. You can buy things and maybe you can travel somewhere, but that place is never going to be yours. And these things are going to eventually be, be obtuse and not, no use to them, you know. Me learning how to be really poor instead of me being upset that I'm poor. I mean, I wish I had more and I would have my fair shake. 
but me learning to be to, to live with nothing or with just my necessities has made my life so much easier. I think it's the same as having a tiny house, except that I really hate that movement. You know, because it's only rich people that make those tiny houses. Like, I can take five months off. I'm only 30, but I don't have to work. You know, <laughs> so it's like simplifying life, really. And and you know where your priorities are. You know, like one of my highest priorities is to buy treats for my dog. That's really important to me. When they're coming down, I know I need to go out. Having a bicycle, not a car, you know, it's like I ride my bicycle everywhere and it, you know, it's, it makes me feel free. Um, but totally, like the whole thing about the separating myself from material things really, really has made my life so easy. And that's why I love New York, because I learned how to be poor in Seattle. And then I came here to be where being simple like this is the way to go. Does that connect to any kind of like spiritual place or how does that, does that align to any other kind of like larger? I mean, I, I think that I would call that being, being spiritual. I mean, I'm completely against any kind of organized religion or any kind of like, listen to me, you know, kind of stuff, you know, but to me, that's what being spiritual would feel like to me. You know, to be just like, this will suffice, you know. I don't need any more. And I don't want any more, you know. I don't even get cravings for food, you know. <laughs> I mean, okay, not true. Not true. When I see a hot dog, I want it. <laughs> and because you're a musician and you create this document of, you know, your voice through time, do you think about legacy? Is that like a part of some purview of how you, how you I don't know. I mean, it's like, I feel like sometimes legacy to me, it's, I, I, maybe I still am not so self-assured as I should be, uh, but I do believe that I have a lot of good one-liners, you know, <laughs> and they will go down in history. <laughs> um, I hope, yeah, I, when I, when I was, when I had, I had cancer, when I had cancer, I was so terrified. Um, I, I think that that's when I, that's probably like the most scared I've been in my life. And I remember talking to Amelia and telling her, I just don't want to die and leave nothing. And I think she told me, but like, you have left something, you know? And I think that, yeah, I do think of in, uh, in terms of, of like people from my country, they hold me in a very special place because of all the things that I am and what I'm not. And, uh, you know, I have nephews and nieces that I talk to all the time, talk about politics all day long. You know, I do, I have a lot of young people that have come through my life. I get, I get mother days and father days, <laughs> father days, uh, things on the internet. <laughs> so I do, I, I guess I don't, don't sit down and think of legacy. I just figure that it's there, you know, and there are things that people have of me that they took him from me. And, but the joke is on them because when I die, other people are going to have it, you know, 
like I've recorded with people and they denied me the recordings. You know, when I went to Germany, they basically kept it all. And for whatever reason, they want to use it for me or against me, you know. Um, I think that I've, I've tried to put out there what has worked for me. And um, like, you, you know, bringing it up as a spiritual thing. Yeah, what's worked for me is working for me really well now, but it's only for me, you know, I think that everybody, you have to have all these circumstances to want to be able to do this, but I got a little confused there. But um, I do think of legacy, and I think that my legacy is, will be helpful for people.